This week in our series on church practices, we're looking at serving together. Why is Christian service such an important part of our practice? What is it that makes Christianity a faith that is so obsessed with serving, whether it be serving our Lord, serving one another, or serving the surrounding culture? Well, the answer to that is actually pretty simple. The founder, author, and perfecter of our faith, our Lord Jesus Christ, both modelled and spoke extensively on this. You could say that service is one of the foundational values of Christianity. Jesus' idea of service stands in stark contrast to the, to the ideas that suffuse our world. Jesus' understanding is divine. It comes from God. And the world's understanding of service and of everything is human. It comes from the fallen, sinful, selfish heart of man. So you would expect there to be a difference, right? Now, my sermon is a little bit different from normal today. Rather than starting with the Bible, I'm going to start with where we find ourselves with Australian culture or Western culture. So bear with me. We are going to get to the Bible in good time. As I was preparing for this sermon and after I talked to Graham about it, so this will be a surprise to him, I came across a book called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. The reference to the dragon and the lamb comes, of course, from the book of Revelation where, the, where Satan, the dragon, and the world system is contrasted and, it, in, and is at war with Jesus, the lamb, and his bride, the church, us. Carl Strobel, who is one of the co-authors, explains that the way of the dragon is power and strength for the sake of control and or uh, domination. Power and strength for the sake of control and or domination. This is the way of the world, to use some form of power and strength to control others. We see it every day, right? It's not that the world doesn't engage in service, of course it does. But the motive and the means of that service are at odds with the way of the Lamb, the way of Christian service. Let me present two examples of the way of the dragon, one from popular fiction and one from the headlines from the last week. First up, a fictional example. Mabel and I have been watching a show on Prime called The Marvellous Mrs. Maisel. It's about a family of very self-centred control freaks in 1950s New York. It's comedy, and much of the comedy comes from watching events spin out of each person's obsessive control, as is often the case. So let's watch this scene which shows the main character, Miriam, engaging in her nightly routine. So let's have a look at this. (laughs) So, a question. Was Miriam, or Midge as she's known, serving her husband by that elaborate process of, of, you know, caring for her skin and getting a makeup on so that when he wakes up, she's all made up already? Or herself? Or a bit of both? What do you think? 
bit of both? No. No? Do you think she's serving her husband, Shalanda? No. Well, not serving him, but keeping a facade to... To control him. (laughs) Keep him in line. (laughs) So she's using her womanly wiles, her strength, her her beauty um, to keep her husband in line, possibly. If you've watched the show, now I'm not saying that, that if you wear makeup that that's what you're doing. But if you watch the show, you will see that Midge's obsessive image management, which she engages in throughout the, the show in every possible way, is a prime example of the way of the dragon. It's, she's using her power and strength to control, uh, and in this case, her power and strength is her beauty, and, and it, it often is, although her beauty gets in the way at times as well. And... Um, part of the way that the comedy or the drama and the comedy of this show works is that almost immediately after this scene, it's in the first episode, um, her husband leaves her for his secretary. So her control doesn't work. That's a part of the tension that creates drama and comedy. Midge's mighty efforts to control his attention, his name's Joel, Joel's attention have failed. So that's one example Let's look at an example from this week. You may have heard about Andrew Thorburn. (coughs) Andrew Thorburn resigning from his role as CEO of the Essendon AFL Club after only one day, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) only one day in the position. The reason that he resigned was because he realised that the views of his church, of which he is the board chairman, were at odds with Essendon's values. Now, many commentators are using this to point out how Christians are being cancelled by our culture. But I actually disagree with this. Actually, like in this, the, the Weekend Australian, almost every opinion piece was saying that, that the editorial and several opinion pieces were talking about how this is an example of cancel culture. But I disagree because Essendon has a clear value that they don't try to hide of inclusivity. Now, what inclusivity means, ironically, is that Essendon is very exclusive, as this cartoon very ably uh, illustrates. Essendon inclusively embraces people like, say, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews, who is a member of the club, who, during the week, took the opportunity to label the traditionally Christian views of City on a Hill, that's Thorburn's church, as hateful and bigotry, to use Andrew's words. But if Essendon includes people like Daniel Andrews, how can someone like Thorburn have any position of authority in that club? Thorburn might manage a job as a humble accountant, so long as he keeps his head down and doesn't share his views with anyone. But how can he function as a CEO, someone expected to promote this value of inclusivity which labels Christianity as hateful and bigoted? Thorburn, 
chose his church over Essendon. And for that, I think he must be congratulated and admired. But I wonder what made him think that he could be CEO of an organisation so dogmatically anti-Christian as the Bombers Football Club. Thorburn, unfortunately, chose for himself at that point the way of the dragon, the way of power and strength in the role of CEO, and he suffered the embarrassing consequences. In our modern society, most of us are going to have to work for organisations whose values are at odds with our own. This is something that we're all going to have to face. So long as we can work out our own values within that organisation, that's okay. Does that limit our options within the organisation? Yes, of course it does. And so it should. If an organisation has clearly expressed values, we need to be able to work within them. In the UK, just this week, to give an example, a nurse was, I think, appropriately sacked from the NHS, that's the National Health Service, for stating that conservatives should not be resuscitated. So that, that the only way you can get health service in the UK is via the NHS, correct? Pretty much. So basically, that nurse was saying that if you're a conservative and you die, you should stay dead. So she was sacked. I think that's appropriate. Her values were at odds with... Her organisation, the NHS, is there to help people regardless of whether they're conservatives or liberals. And she should have no expectations of keeping her job if that's her attitude. Now, whether an AFL football club should have such a dogmatic exclusionary value is another question altogether. Given the social contract that most sporting clubs operate under, they're heavily supported by taxpayers' money, I think it's unacceptable that such bigotry is allowed in a club, but that's a higher order question and, and it has implications for taxpayer support for Christian organisations as well. So we need to be very careful when we talk about that sort of question. My point is, the cultural warriors of Western monotheism are making a big deal every time a Christian comes into conflict with modern Australian society. But as I said at length a month ago, we don't need to worry. Our strategy doesn't depend on having CEO positions in confused football clubs. We don't need to be running the nation's media. We don't even need to have a huge influential megachurch. These are all dragonish tactics, not lamb-like ones. So what does the way of the lamb look like then? The way of the dragon is control, strength and power to control. What is the way of the lamb? Well, let's join Jesus and his disciples as they rest up in Capernaum after a long, dusty walk. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, maybe Mary and Martha's house, we don't know, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they'd been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. He sat down and called the 12 disciples over to him and said, 
Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my Father who sent me. If anyone would be first... Sorry, that was already on there, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. So, Jesus said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Hmm. I wonder if anyone's told that to Trump. Or any of our politicians. There is a reason why lamb-like leaders must serve, and it's very simple. Freedom. The way of the dragon is dominance and control. It's the way of socialism, where the government controls all. It's the way of totalitarianism, of despotism. You just need to look at at countries like China, Russia, Victoria... (laughs) The, the Australian response to COVID, even the Roman Catholic Church, these, these are structures of power and dominance. Regardless of their stated motives and goals, they're all dragonish in the way that they go about doing their business. Look at the traditional family structure where the husband dictates to the wife and the wife dictates to the kids. That too is dragonish. But the way of the lamb does not dictate. Rather, it asks for a covenant, an agreement built on respect and trust and mutual service. And when it's between humans, mutual submission. Paul explains that Jesus took that approach when he refused to cling to his status and privileges as God. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, Paul says to the Philippians. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Now, Paul actually learnt directly from Jesus how the way of the Lamb works. He shares a personal testimony with the Corinthians in his second letter. In chapter 12, he says, If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so, because I would be telling the truth. But I won't do it, because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message. Even though I've received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me, And keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses. 
and in the insults, hardships, persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The way of the Lamb is to allow God's power to work in our weakness. When we serve in humility and selflessness, the mighty power of God is at work. The dragon can rage and fume, but the weak, humble servants of the Lamb will triumph. So this is all very well, right? But it's a bit abstract. What does it look like in real life? The first thing to note is that the way of the lamb is not a lonesome cowboy or heroic loner sort of way. The way of the lamb is the way of community. In the book of Ephesians, Paul describes the Holy Spirit's vision for the church. I don't know if you remember our sermon series on Ephesians on this beautiful book, but it contains this book contains so many piercing insights. Hopefully our sermon series managed to convey that a little but so many insights into how we must live as followers of Christ in a fallen world. If we are to serve Jesus, we cannot do it alone. So Paul's call to serve in the latter part of Ephesians starts with a call to unity. If we pick up in Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapters 1 to 3 are sort of giving the, the, the way that what the church is, And then in chapter 4, Paul starts talking about how to be the church. He starts with, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You can see here what it is that's important in our service. It's the attitude with which we serve. We must serve humbly, gently, patiently, forbearingly and lovingly. One of our primary goals must be to maintain the precious unity that we have, a unity which is supernatural. It's a gift of the Spirit. And so it it does actually need special attention. Now Paul doesn't just give general direction, he also tells us how to serve in those areas of our lives where we spend most of our time, family and home. Well, hopefully we spend most of our time there. Certainly back then people spent most of their time there. And again, his approach is radically different to the world's. Lifehack, which is a great website if you want to know how to live your life, theoretically, suggests a range of things to help you enjoy life, starting with focusing on yourself. It's hard to read there, but that says focus on yourself. Uh, Make time to relax. Avoid the news, because it'll just make you anxious. Sorry about that. I've just messed all of that up for you. And nurture your positive relationships because those negative relationships are just going to make you feel horrible. That's a dragonish way to manage your life. 
In contrast, talking about marriage, the foundational relationship in family, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul's advice to parents and children follows the same pattern. Actually, I think I've got something more to say about that. Sorry. Yes, I do. Now, if you want to hear those ideas about marriage unpacked more fully, I have done that, and I suggest you go back to my sermon on that from January last year. It's on our website, January 2021. But just let me point out a startling feature of Paul's advice. Paul tells wives to focus on their service to their husbands. And he tells husbands to focus on their service to their wives. Nowhere in all of Paul's advice does he ever direct anyone anyone to focus on their own needs. In contrast to life hack, nor does he try nor does he advise you to try to force someone else to do their job properly. We're only responsible for one person, ourselves. And we only have control over one person, ourselves. So we shouldn't be like Midge, who focused on her image. Rather, we should focus on doing our best for the benefit of the other. And we should think from their perspective if we can. Paul's advice to parents and children follows the same pattern. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Not for this is a good idea or for, you know, you'll end up better if you do that, but because it's right. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And his advice to masters and servants again follows the same pattern. Bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So you're going to get the same treatment as your servant. So this idea that we have responsibilities in various relationships and roles in our lives is one that society is very uncomfortable with. Our society is very uncomfortable with this. It threatens our freedom, you see. Our society values a radical autonomy, a freedom from all restrictions. If you, if you Google freedom, if you do a Google images search for freedom, what you will find, I did this in preparation for the sermon, but I haven't put it up on the, the slide. What you will find is lots of pictures of people standing on mountains with their arms up in the air, with nothing around them. They're totally free and unbound <laughs> and no restrictions. 
Our society values that. We want to be in complete control of ourselves and restrictions get in the way. Unfortunately, this idea is one of the devil's greatest lies. It's literally snake oil that cures none of our ills. Well, sort of literally. If you know any Gen Zers or Gen Alpha kids, you'll know that the radical autonomy modelled in the classroom, offered online, sold on TikTok and Instagram, it's the most brutal slave master imaginable. Their generation is bound tightly by anxiety and a desperate conformity. They feel like their lives are always out of their control. This concept of radical autonomy has had the opposite effect. It's actually enslaved them. But the Christian view of service to God yields true freedom. Even in the midst of tight constrictions, such as those at, say, the Essendon Football Club, because, so this isn't actually part of my sermon, this, this joke. It was just yesterday's cartoon and it's talking about the Essendon Football Club again. But you can see how radically different the world's ideas are to Christ's ideas. And because we're Christ's servants, Christ's servants, the opportunities that we're denied, such as being the CEO of an AFL club, are not, not a real issue for us. Christianity focuses, on, focuses us on our responsibilities, not on our rights. Jesus' blessings, such as in the Sermon on the Mount, are countercultural. If we can live out a humble, faithful, loving life of service, Jesus will use that to change the world. We don't have to become the CEO of Essendon or the Premier of Victoria or the head of a, a megachurch. The Apostle Paul explained it to his readers who lived, remember, in the pagan Roman Empire, one of the greatest examples of power and dominance. Peter explained it this way. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honour those who do right. It is God's will that your honourable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your, ex your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. That is the spirit of our service. So whatever good things we find to do, let's do that with an attitude of humble servanthood. Because remember, Jesus' power is found in our weakness. The way of the dragon leads to death, but the way of the lamb leads to eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, 
The world tempts us with its way of power and control. Our own hearts desire that. That's that's what we naturally want to do. Yet your word teaches us that your way is a way of humble service. Help us to accept the constraints of our circumstances and to trust you to show your power through our weakness. In your name we pray. Amen.